I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, verses 27 to 30. We're going to continue our study on this letter. This morning, I want to begin, maybe we'll do a little bit of interaction even. If I were to ask the question, what does it mean to be Canadian, to be a citizen of Canada? I'm curious. I have a number of things written down here. I'm curious how many you can get. So when I say, what does it mean to be a Canadian, a Canadian citizen, what are some of the things we think of? Hockey. Freedom. Privilege. Opportunity. Some of you are thinking in better ways than I was, maybe. I had, I had thought of hockey and toques and Tim Hortons, maple syrup, snow, saying A and sorry a lot. We're known to be really polite. Maybe an affinity for the McKenzie brothers for some of us, Bob and Doug, stereotypical Canadian hosers, duct tape. This morning, as we continue our series, our study of Paul's letter to the Philippians, we'll encounter the, the Apostle Paul speaking about being citizens, specifically calling the Philippians to live as citizens of heaven. What Jesus wants each one of us to hear this morning is that we are called as disciples of Jesus to live now in the present, in our present context as faithful citizens of heaven, come what may from a world that opposes Christ and the gospel. Let me say that again. What Jesus wants us to hear is that we are called to live as faithful, as his disciples were called to live now uh, in our present context as faithful citizens of heaven, come what may from a world opposed to Christ and the gospel. Paul is writing this letter to the church in Philippi from a prison in Rome. Uh, he's awaiting trial before Caesar. And in the portion of the letter that we've already explored, we, we have ex we've looked at First Paul's prayer report, his expression of gratitude to God for the Philippians, for what God is doing in them, for their partnership in the gospel. And then he shares the second part of his prayer report, his intercession for them, his desire to see them grow, that their love would abound more and more, that their lives would be full of the fruit of righteousness, that they would grow in wisdom and discernment as followers of Christ. After his prayer report, Paul shares a bit of an update on his own situation. Remember, they don't have internet and phone calls, so they had known that he'd been arrested, but he updates them, yes, I'm still in chains. But he, he shares with them that God has actually used his circumstances for the advance of the gospel, not only through the opportunities he has had to speak of Jesus to the Roman soldiers guarding him and, and to others in Caesar's household, but also his imprisonment has emboldened the church in Rome, and others are boldly, with this newfound boldness, proclaiming Christ and the gospel. In the text we looked at last week, Paul shares a bit more personally. He shares with the church his need for their prayers, that when he stands before Caesar, which he's anticipating will happen soon, that he will have sufficient courage to exalt Christ. And so he asks that, and he says that he, he prays that he would have sufficient courage to exalt Christ whether he lives or whether he dies. And he concludes 
by sharing his expectation. He does not know for certain, but he expects that he will be released so that God can yet use him to help the Philippians progress in their faith, the very thing he had prayed for earlier. As we turn to the the passage we're looking at this morning, two quick reminders. First, the Philippians are experiencing two things. On the one hand, they are experiencing external opposition that is causing suffering. And secondly, there is some internal tension that is threatening the unity of the church. The second thing I want to remind you is that Paul is still in chains, expecting to be released, but not knowing for certain whether that will happen. Uh, Let's pick the text up, verse 27, follow along as I read. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you, or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had and now hear that I still have. I want to walk through this passage with you this morning. We're going to look at four things. First, the imperative, the command. Second, the situation. Third, the theology. And fourth, the implications. So the imperative, the situation, the theology, and the implications. After speaking about, after sharing about his own affairs, his own situation, that he is still in chains, but God is using that for the advance of the gospel after inviting the Philippians to pray for him that he would have sufficient courage when he stands before Caesar, Paul now shifts his focus to to what's going on in the Philippians' uh, lives, their affairs. And here we come to the urgencies that lie at the very heart of this letter. This is the key to the whole. This is why he writes. In verse 27, we encounter this command, this imperative. And this command will, in fact, drive the argument all the way through chapter 2, verse 18. Here's how our text begins. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Whatever happens, only. In the original, this paragraph begins with the adverb only, which has been translated in the NIV as whatever happens. The point is, whatever happens, only, regardless of whatever happens, this, this is what I want, only this. What he wants, he, he moves from fo- focused on and from speaking about their future, namely his desire for them to progress in their faith, to addressing the present scene in the church at Philippi, where there is great potential for regress rather than progress. Here's what Paul wants for them. Here's what he wants them to focus on. Here's what he wants them to engage in. Here's what he wants them to do, whether he comes to them or whether he only hears about it. So Paul Paul is in prison. He's expecting that God will have him released so that he can return to the Philippians to help them in their progress and their faith. But he's not certain. And as we will discover in chapter 2, Paul is going to send Timothy to them shortly. That's his plan. So Epaphroditus has brought... uh, Word to Paul. Paul has sent this letter with Epaphroditus back to the church, and Paul's going to say, I hope to send Timothy to you. So, what he's saying is, whether I come to you or whether I get a report back from Timothy, either way, this is what I want. Only this, uh, whatever happens, let this be true of you. Let this be the thing I hear, or let this be the thing I observe when I come. And what is that one thing that he wants them to focus on? What is the one thing that he is commanding, the imperative of this text? The NIV puts it this way, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Only this. 
Whatever happens, this one thing, conduct yourselves in a way, in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Sometimes it is difficult to capture all the nuances, all the particulars, all that you want to capture when you translate some of this, something from one language into another. Some of you know this. Some of you speak another language. Some of you perhaps speak multiple other languages, and you will know this better than some of us. I grew up, both my parents grew up in families where they spoke German. That was their first language. And when I was a little boy, me and my brothers were sent off to German school every Saturday, six days of school, imagine that. Uh, eventually, our, our complaining wore my parents down and they gave up. So I didn't learn much German. You know, sprechen Sie Deutsch, danke schön, na Junges. I knew a few words, but I really, I can't speak German. And so as a kid, though, at family gatherings, we, we would go, and often the adults, my grandparents, my parents, uncles and aunts, they would talk in German. And, and whatever, most of the time it was boring, I didn't, I didn't care, I didn't feel I was missing anything, but there would be those moments where all of a sudden there would be this uproarious laughter. And inevitably, as kids, we would ask what question? What's so funny? To which we so often heard, it's not funny in English. And I'm like, What? How can it be so funny in German and not funny in English? I will go to my grave not understanding that, I think. But there are just some things that are hard to, to communicate, all the nuances, all, the, all that you want to capture. And so that's going on here. We, we read, Paul, Paul puts this, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. So here, the verb that is translated in the NIV, conduct yourselves, it's accurate. Okay, We can trust our English translations. I'm not suggesting that, but there's, there's something else going on that I want to help you see. The, the Greek verb that is used here is a word that is closely, closely related to the Greek word for city. And, and it captures, uh, it has this sense of uh, this verb, take an active part in the affairs of your city. It's talking about being a citizen of your city. So in this context, in the Greek world, they would have used this word to speak of being a citizen of either your Greek city-state or of the empire. It has this notion of citizenship. So conduct yourselves in a manner. So it is about how you live, but specifically connecting with their citizenship. As citizens of your city, live, live as a citizen. It's simply not possible that the Philippians would have heard this, that Paul chose this specific word. It's not possible that they would have heard this and not caught the fact that Paul was making a play on their dual citizenship. Remember, one of the things that I've highlighted earlier in this series is that Philippi had a unique story that Octavian, after winning a great battle on the plains of Philippi, he later became the Emperor Augustus, he made Philippi a Roman colony. He granted citizenship, Roman citizenship, to all the residents of Philippi. And so Philippi was this incredibly pro-Roman city. And this was a source, a great source of pride. So the Philippians were Romans. Philippi was this colony of Rome, this little piece of Rome outside of Rome. Their citizenship as Romans was a critical thing that lay at the very heart of who they were as citizens of this city. And so here, what Paul is getting is that through their faith in Jesus, 
they have now been incorporated as citizens into a new community, a new colony, a new community of believers. That is, they are citizens of a new city, the city of God, the, city of, the citizens of heaven. They are a colony of heaven on earth. And so this verb here, translated literally here, uh, conduct yourselves very literally means live as citizens. The modifier is that they're to live as the kind of citizens they're supposed to be, as citizens who are worthy of the gospel, uh, worthy of the gospel of Christ. The gospel is the crucial thing. The gospel, the truths about Jesus and his death for sin and his offer of life and forgiveness, that is to shape their lives as citizens of heaven as they live as this colony of heaven on earth. That's the imperative. That's the command. That's what we need to know as we move through the rest of our text and in the coming weeks uh, as we move forward in this letter. And it leads us to the second matter, and that is the situation. Remember the two issues that are going on in Philippi. I've highlighted those. I want to remind you again. We know that the church is experiencing external opposition that is leading to some suffering. And we know that the church is experiencing some internal tension, some strife that is threatening the well-being, the unity of the church. And it's into that situation that Paul gives this imperative, this command to live as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. But what exactly does that mean? Paul does not leave us to wonder. We read on in our text. Uh, then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence... So remember, whether Paul is freed from prison and go to the Philippians or whether he's going to hear a report after he sends Timothy to them, either way, whether I come or whether I hear a report, I will know that. And he says three things. I will know first that you stand firm in one spirit. I will know second that you are, as you stand firm in one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. And third, that you will do these two things without fear, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose them. That's the content, if you will. That's what it will look like for the Philippians in this time to live as citizens, lives worthy of the gospel of Christ. First, it means unity for the body, standing firm in one spirit. Paul is making the point that the Holy Spirit is the key to unity in the church. Gordon Fee writes this, Paul's point is that their being one in Christ is the direct result of the one Spirit's presence in their individual and community life. I've said this before, I'll say it again, the Christian life is not a life we live by our own striving, by our own wisdom, by our own power, by our own strength. It is life by the Spirit. Our vision says that we want to grow deeper in intimacy with Christ, closer in relationships with one another, bolder on mission for the lost, but that is grounded in the gospel, the good news of what Christ has done, his death for us, his gift of righteousness for us, and empowered by the Spirit. We need the Spirit. The Christian life for us individually and corporately is uh, the Spirit is at the very core. It is vital for the Spirit. And that's Paul's point, that you would stand firm in the one Spirit. Paul says things like this elsewhere in the book of Ephesians. We read this, Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Paul's imperative that they would live as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ 
That one of the ways that will be manifested is unity, that they will stand firm together in unity. And remember, there's this internal tension, there's this threat that rather than progressing in their faith, they will regress. The Spirit is key. And in the portion of the letter that lies immediately ahead, ahead, Paul will speak very directly to some of the behaviors that the Spirit will convict us of and empower us to, or the Philippians first. That, that is, no selfish ambition, no, no pride, no vain conceit, and, 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 and humility. There needs to be humility. There needs to be a, a, a sacrifice of our own rights, looking to the interests of others rather than our own. Those are the ways in which this will manifest itself, this, the presence of the Spirit in our lives. But for the moment, Paul simply reminds them of the vital role the presence of the Spirit has in their life together. And he tells them, he calls them to stand firm in that one Spirit. He calls them to unity. So on the one hand, living as citizens of heaven will mean seeking the well-being of the church, their local community, their colony of heaven in the midst of Philippi. Part of what it means focuses inwardly on the well-being of the church. But there is more that Paul includes here. They are to have a missionary impulse. Not only are they to stand firm in the one Spirit, uh, together in unity through the Spirit, but they are also to strive together as one for the faith of the gospel. The word strive here comes from the world of athletics. This, this striving together, working together as a team. Many of you know that I have the privilege of coaching at the junior high down the road uh, just a kilometer away. Uh, this week we had playoffs in uh, coaching volleyball. And we lost a close game on Monday, which meant Thursday we played for the bronze medal. And uh, just, just a word, like when, when I began this year, remember there was no volleyball last year. There was no school sports. And so most of the guys who came out to try out had never played volleyball. And so in all honesty, when things began at tryouts, I was like, oh, no. It, it was just discouraging. Like, I thought, what's going to happen? But it's such a joy and privilege to work with these students that on Thursday, valiantly they lost. But in five matches, the best of five, we lost the first match. We won the next two. We lost the fourth. And then the fifth match, game to 15, these guys battled hard and lost 15-13. You win by two points. So heartbreaking on the one hand, but I said to them afterwards, I'm so proud of you, how you have grown and worked together. That's the sense of what Paul is saying, that you would strive together. This word comes from the athletic world, striving together as one. These guys learn to play as a team, to work together. They are to contend together. They are to strive side by side for the sake of the gospel, and they need the Spirit for that. They need, they need the Spirit and they need one another. They're called into community to, to work as a team. So as citizens of heaven, living in Philippi, they are to seek to advance the gospel. There is also this outward focus. They are to strive for unity through the Spirit, unity that is currently at risk in Philippi, and they are to contend together for the spread of the gospel in Philippi outward. The third bit of content Paul provides here with regards to them living as citizens worthy of the gospel is found in the beginning of verse 28 where we read this, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. Without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This reminds us again of one of the things that I've highlighted numerous times, and that is that though there is internally this risk of disunity and strife, but externally there is a threat. 
Externally, there is opposition that is causing, uh, bringing suffering in the lives of the Philippians. And, and this word here brings us face to face with the primary historical context of this letter. Clearly, there are some in Philippi who are opposing these believers, who are opposing the church. Now, here's our problem. The Philippians knew exactly who Paul was talking about. Paul speaks of those who oppose them, and they knew. They knew who he was talking about. And so Paul doesn't elaborate and tell them. They already know. And so we're left going, who is it? What exactly is going on, Paul? We know that people are opposing them, but, but who? He doesn't elaborate. And so, but, but we are able to make an educated guess. There are some hints in this letter. We know that Philippi is a colony of Rome, that it has a very special relationship with the empire, that they are very pro-Rome. We also know that loyalty to Rome was demonstrated through participation in what was called the cult of the emperor. If you were with us through our study of the book of Revelation, I spoke about that then. It was this veneration, this almost worship in some cases, of the emperor to speak of that, that honoring would happen by saying that Caesar is kurios, Lord. But for these believers, for these Christians, they could no longer call Caesar Lord because they had given their loyalty to another king, another Lord. One, in fact, who had been put to death by this very empire. So it is very likely that the citizens of Philippi, tremendously loyal to Rome, very supportive, very pro-Rome, are, are angry are lashing out at Christians as they see their lack of loyalty to the emperor, as they see their lack of loyalty to Rome. This, this reality, the pride they had in their citizenship as Romans, that the, the Christians are no longer participating in. And there's this anger, there's this opposition, there's this external threat. Now, we don't know what forms that pressure and opposition took, what manner the suffering what manner of suffering would yet come? We don't know that. But we know that, that within two years of Paul writing this letter, Emperor Nero would be launched this great persecution of the church in which Paul will lose his life, disciple Peter will lose his life, countless other Christians. Nero did some horrific things to people in the church. He would tie them to poles of wood and dip them in tar and light them on fire to light his garden parties. This is what lay ahead for the church. To these believers, Paul says, stand firm in the one spirit. Contend together as one for the faith, for the gospel. And do so without fear of those who oppose you. A brief aside, there's this parenthetical moment where Paul points to the fact that as they live as citizens of heaven worthy of the gospel, their lives, even their suffering, will be an omen, a sign of destruction to those who oppose them, and a sign of their salvation. That is, as they suffer as God's people, living lives of citizenship in heaven, and as they suffer for that, their suffering will be a sign of the coming destruction to those who oppose them and of their own salvation. Here's what Gordon Fee says. Such people cannot be intimidated by anyone or anything since they belong to the future with a kind of certainty that people whose lives are basically controlled by fate could never understand. He says, do this without fear. 
Stand in unity together in one spirit, contending for the gospel together as one without fear. Your very lives in the midst of whatever comes will be a sign of your salvation and their coming destruction. That brings us to the third thing I wanted to focus on, and that is the theology of this text. We turn to verse 29. It says there, For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for Him. Paul says here that the Philippians have been given two things, graciously given two things. The first is the gift of salvation, the gift of faith. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in Him. Salvation has been given to Him as a gift. We need to understand this, that that our salvation is a pure gift given by God through His grace. That we were God's enemies, that we were spiritually dead, and God touched us. That God opened our blind eyes. God replaced our hearts of stone with the hearts of flesh. God gave us the gift of faith. He brought us into His family. That We were adopted as sons and daughters. God has graciously given us faith to believe in Christ. If you are here and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, I want to share with you Christ's love for you. Christ came and paid the penalty for us. Our salvation is not something we achieve. We simply believe. Christ gave His life for us that we might be forgiven. That Christ gives us His perfect righteousness. He clothes us with His holiness. The Christian life is not a life where we achieve something. Where where we produce something. Where uh, God accepts us based on our performance for Him. No, it is a pure gift of His grace. And I want you to hear that. God in His love gave His Son for you so that you might know Him and be adopted by Him. We were dead in our sins and Christ made us alive. We were powerless. We were sinners. We were enemies. And Christ died for us and clothes us with His holiness. He has graciously given us this and so we owe Him our worship. and We owe Him everything. But there is another thing that we are told here we have also been graciously given to suffer with Him. Really? Graciously given to suffer with Him? That's the gift that no one wants, right? Some of you know the Far Side cartoon that says, unbeknownst to most theologians, there was a fourth wise man, but he was sent away for bringing fruitcake. The gift no one wants. Maybe some people like it, sorry if you do. It's been graciously given to you to suffer for Him. In other words, suffering should not surprise us. It is evidence of God's favor that God is using us as His people in this world. That you are His. Paul We need to note this is not speaking about suffering in general. There are many ways in which we suffer in this world. This world is not as it's supposed to be because of human sin and human rebellion. Death 
has entered the world. There are thorns and thistles. There is sickness and death. Paul is not speaking of suffering in general. He's speaking of suffering that we encounter as we live as citizens of heaven in a world that is hostile to God, resistant to his love and his grace poured out through his son, Jesus, on the cross. He's speaking about that suffering. And he says to the Philippians that they are to live for Christ in the same way that Christ lived for them. Christ who died for them on behalf of Christ for a broken, rebellious, lost world. They are to live for Him. That it is a grace, a gracious gift to suffer for Him. Before we turn our attention to the fourth matter, the implications of this, a quick word on verse 30. Verse 30, we read, Paul says, Since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Paul shares this as a way of encouraging the Philippians. He says essentially to them, we're in this together. We need to remember that Paul and the Philippian church share a history. Their stories connect, right? About 12 years before he writes this letter, Paul visited Philippi. Paul and Silas. And you may recall that in the course of their time there, Paul uh, casts a demon out of a slave girl, and that infuriates the owners. They're dragged before the civil magistrates. They have Paul and Silas severely flogged and locked up in jail. And then in the middle of the night, there's this earthquake, and the door is open, and the jailer's about to kill himself because in that world, as a Roman soldier, he would be responsible for every life lost. And Paul cries out, we're all here, don't, don't do anything. And that night... That jailer and his whole family put their faith in Jesus, enter the kingdom. They're part of the church. They know how Paul suffered when he was with them. They know the severe flogging. The jailer, who's a part of this church, washed his wounds. And so Paul says, since you are going through the same struggles you saw I had, they saw the struggle, the suffering that he had. And now... Here that I still have, Paul writes this from in chains in Rome, about to go before Caesar. Paul is saying to the Philippians, as you suffer, I want you to know that we're in this together. That I'm suffering too. That we're in this together. That this is a word of encouragement. The suffering that you are experiencing, we're both experiencing. And it's because we are in Christ, because we are citizens of heaven living lives worthy of the gospel, that we should expect this. This is actually a gracious gift of God that shows us that we are His and shows the world their judgment if they don't surrender to Christ. So fourth, let's turn to the implications. We are called to live as citizens of heaven, as a colony of heaven on earth. And as I said, suffering for Jesus, for His sake, for the sake of the advance of the gospel, should not surprise us. After all, we follow a crucified Messiah. A Messiah who died for His enemies. A Messiah who won by losing. A Messiah who chose what seemed utter foolishness, the cross, by which to conquer, by which to achieve the victory of God. We don't much like the thought of suffering. 
And it's not that this is to, to bring us joy, yay, I get to suffer, but here's what Gordon Fee writes. Contemporary Christians hear reluctantly, either out of guilt that so many of us look so little like this, or out of fear that it might someday really be true for us. Paul said, it has been graciously given to you not only to believe, but also to suffer on his behalf. Though many of our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world know what it is to suffer, we in the West at least largely have been spared to this point. But will that always remain the case? I would contend that that very well may change. Some of you, if you've been paying attention to the news, know that this week the House of Commons passed Bill C-4. Maybe some of you are unfamiliar with that. Bill C-4 is a ban on conversion therapy. Uh, parts of what they're trying to outlaw are reasonable things to outlaw, but they have defined conversion therapy so incredibly broadly that this is a law that will really put us as the church to the test. It will mean that if I counsel someone to not act on same-sex attraction, that I'm breaking the criminal code of Canada, punishable by prison time. That if I discourage someone from transitioning from one gender to another, that I have broken the criminal code and am subject to prison. It means that the sermon series that I preached last winter, January through March, will become illegal. And this isn't just about me or counselors or other pastors, parents, grandparents. It will be illegal, a criminal offense for you to encourage your child, your grandchild, to live as their birth sex, or to discourage them or someone else from acting on, on same-sex attraction. Here's a scenario. Let's imagine that someone in the church or someone comes to me, a married man comes to me, and confesses that he is having an affair. This law would say that my first question to him should be, are you having this affair with another woman or with a man? Because here's the law. According to this law, if he's having an affair with another woman, I can call him to confess and to repent and to change his behavior. But if he's having an affair with another man, for me to do that would be illegal, a violation of the Criminal Code of Canada, subjecting me to five years in prison. The House of Commons passed this unanimously on Wednesday. The expectation is that the, the Senate will approve it before Christmas, and 30 days after this, it will get royal assent and be law in our land. So for us as Christians to be faithful to Jesus means that we may suffer in new ways. It's sobering, I know. Uh, we, you know if you were with me through that series on gender and sexuality that, that we're all sexually broken, that we all need God's grace, that we don't rant and rave about things. We call people to Christ. Whether you have same-sex attraction or opposite sex, we, we, we need to obey Christ. We need to surrender our sexuality to Christ. We call everyone to obedience to Christ, to full surrender to Christ, whatever that looks like. But that is not something that those in power and many in our culture are okay with. They're not okay with us having a different opinion. And so we face this reality. Six weeks from now, by the end of January, I believe this will be law. And so what will that mean for us? What will that mean for me? What will that mean for you? 
it has been graciously given to you. Not only to believe in Christ, but to suffer for Him. We follow a crucified Messiah. Gordon Fee writes this, Through death on a cross, He, Jesus, not only saved us, but modeled for us God's way of dealing with the opposition, loving them to death. He suffered for us, and He graciously gives us the privilege of suffering for Him for a world that is lost and in darkness and in rebellion that others might come to know Jesus and the hope that we have found. I don't know what the future holds, neither do you, but we know the one who holds it. And we know that when we suffer, if we suffer, when we suffer as citizens of heaven, living out our citizenship in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus, that that is a sign of our salvation, that we are God's and God is using us. We are called as disciples of Jesus to live, now, to live in our present context, to live as residents of Edmonton, as Canadian citizens, as faithful citizens of heaven, as a colony of heaven, as the people of God living presently here, come what may, from a world opposed to Christ. Brothers and sisters, May we be filled with the Spirit. May we be emboldened. May we be filled with grace and wisdom to live faithfully as disciples of Jesus, to live as a colony of heaven on earth, come what may, to stand firm in one spirit, to contend together as one for the sake of the gospel without fear. By His grace and His empowering presence, may that be so. Amen.